We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Only His blood has the power. That is our great and glorious hope, and that is what we have been studying over the recent weeks, and we continue our study together. We have been in 1 Thessalonians for the past several months, and we begin now on a brand new journey in the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'll ask you to join me in turning there this morning as we start our study of 2 Thessalonians this morning. When someone is evaluating a church, what are the criteria they use to evaluate it? The Mississippi Baptist Convention is taking place over the next several days, and there will be pastors that are gathered there, among others, and there'll be a lot of conversations that are had about churches. And often people ask, how is your church doing? Or you will hear a statement like this, tell me about your church. And people will begin to tell about them. And most of the time, when people are evaluating churches, even when ministers are evaluating churches, we begin to talk about things like buildings. And you may say something like this, you ought to come and check it out. We have this brand new basketball court. It's just got through getting painted. It's incredible. Um, it's going to be a great place for our students. It's going to be a wonderful place for our kids to be able to, to play. It's fantastic. Or if it's not something about the building, you may tell someone something about a program that the church has. Man, you really ought to come and check out our kids' ministry. It is amazing what God is doing on Wednesday nights. We have kids coming out of the ears. We have these programs for them and for students. Or they may say something like, the music ministry at the church is absolutely wonderful. Our instrumentalists are fantastic. Our vocalists are great. You may even say something like, wow, our media department is absolutely wonderful. If you were to check out all the different platforms that we have and everything they're doing, we have a fantastic media ministry. And certainly if people are evaluating a church, they want to know, well, how many you're running? How many people come to church on a given Sunday? How many do you have in each service? How many baptisms have you had this year? And if they don't talk about that, then they're going to want to know about money. Well, tell me about how's your giving? What's your budget at your, at your church? Have y'all met budget? Are you over budget? What about the debt at the church? How are things going as far as that is concerned? And often those are the conversations that are had when people evaluate a church. In fact, even oftentimes when people decide on where they're going to go to church, they use those criteria and they use those evaluations. But what if we were to ask this question? How does God evaluate a church? How does God actually evaluate ministry? When he looks at church health, what are the indicators that God uses to decide whether or not a church is healthy? In just a few moments, as we begin reading 2 Thessalonians together, we're going to see how God evaluates a church. But as we begin reading, you'll remember that as we've been walking through this study of our great and glorious hope, only a few months have passed since Paul wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. Obviously, that letter was delivered and Paul got a report back. He gets a report back and then he responds to that letter. And you'll notice in the first line that we're going to read together that it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
Paul is the author of the letter, but Silas and Timothy are with him when he writes it. And there's some dominant themes that have come up. One thing you'll see is that Paul is really proud of the the Thessalonian church. These people at Thessalonica are doing incredible, and he is really proud of them for their perseverance and their endurance and their growth in God. He is so proud of them. But by the second letter, there's still some issues that he feels like needed to be cleared up. Either they still had a misunderstanding or hadn't quite gotten it the first time. So you're going to see some themes that come up over the next several weeks that Paul really pounds. Uh, Number one, he talks a lot about persecution, a lot about suffering, about enduring in trials because that's something the Thessalonians are dealing with. He continues to talk a great deal about end times. If, those, if that's something you have questions about, uh, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, we will be addressing that as we walk through this letter together. And then certainly a theme he picked up last time that he's going to pick up again is idleness or complacency. People actually not working as hard as they should for the Lord because they believed that the end times were so imminent that it wasn't going to do any good. And so among other things, those are the three primary things that you're going to see that Paul addresses in 2 Thessalonians. But he starts off by commending this church and telling them why God evaluates this church as a healthy church. So what's going to drive our time today, instead of a big idea this morning, we're going to ask a big question. And what is the big question that we're asking as we read together in just a moment? What are the benchmarks of a church that is counted worthy? What are the benchmarks of a church that is counted worthy? Would you stand with me and we'll discover the answer to that question. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Lord, teach us today to be a church that, are, that is counted worthy in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? And you'll see that big question that's on the screen. What are the benchmarks of a church that is counted worthy? Now, to set the stage before we jump right in, let's just clear a couple of things up. I think most of us understand this, but let's just put it out there on the table. If we're talking about First Thessalonica, one thing we need to know about them is they had no building. They had no church as far as a building is concerned. Their church was comprised of people and they met in homes. They had not had a building campaign. They had not had a capital campaign. They didn't even have a checking account. They got together as a group of people and as they got together, they did church wherever it was needed. In other words, if you had to meet in someone's home, that's where you met, but you figured it out. But church was never associated with a building. Now, what's different about that than today? Most people refer to the church as the building. In fact, we talk about our church. We talk about the sanctuary. We say we are going to church. And most time that means that we put in a Google address and that is where we go. But 
to the Thessalonians, where they met was completely secondary to who they are. Let me say that again. Where they met was secondary to who they are. When they thought of their church, who did they think of? They thought about the God of the church and the people of the church. So the church in Thessalonica, just like the church in the New Testament and all true churches, is not a building. God forbid something was to take place and we lost all of our property. I have no idea what way the government's going, but if we lose tax-exempt status, who's to say a tornado doesn't come through? We always are looking at storms. Anything can happen. If we were to lose this building tomorrow, I want you to look at me and hear me well. First Baptist Church of Summit would still be First Baptist Church of Summit without this sanctuary, without that playground, without the Christian Life Center, without the hangar. We would still be that because we are the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, those that Jesus bled for and died for. So first thing they didn't have, they didn't have a building. But let me tell you what else they didn't have. They didn't have any programs. If you've been Baptist for more than 10 minutes, that makes no sense to you. Because if we have anything, we have a program. And if we don't have a program, we'll invent a program. And we have programs for things that we don't need programs for. And we do programs that don't work. And once we've done a program, we treat it like a holy cow and we don't ever quit doing the program. And so because of that, when we say there's somewhere that doesn't have a program, people look up and say, how do you have a church without a program? Here's the program, worship. Wait a minute, what about all the five purposes and all the different aspects? The purpose of the church is worship, period. Everything else we do flows from worship. You say, what about evangelism? Flows from worship. Tell, show me in an evangelist and I'll show you a worshiper. What about discipleship? Show me a disciple and I will show you a worshiper. Everything that flows out of worship. So worship was something that was absolutely key. It wasn't because of a building. It wasn't because of, pro, of a program and something else they didn't have. And this is fascinating. They did not have a superstar pastor. I think this is really important to note. If you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, it never mentions the pastor. Paul wasn't the pastor. He went, preached. It reminds me of times on the mission field when I've been to Africa and other places. You literally go into a village. Nobody knows Jesus. You preach Jesus. Isn't that novel? You offer them, you offer the gospel. People get radically saved by the power of the gospel. And the first meeting you have as a church, you say, now which one of you is going to pastor this place? And then someone disciples them from a neighboring village that knows Jesus. And so they pour in. That's exactly what Thessalonica was like. Somebody was pastoring this church, but they were no superstar. Nobody even knew their name. I don't know where we've gotten to at a place in church life where we identify our Christianity with who the preacher is. Your salvation has nothing to do with me or any other pastor. I'm glad that you love your pastors and respect your pastors, and I think that's biblical. But at the end of the day, God is not evaluating a church based on how cool or hip the pastor is or how many likes they get or how often they tweet or any of the rest of it. It has nothing to do with it. The church health has to do with more better things than that. Notice this. We want to be churches today who have so much social influence. People hated the Thessalonians. They hated them. By being a part of the church, they had less social influence. They would have had more social influence if they'd have stayed heathens, if they'd have stayed pagans. 
I don't know where the church got to thinking that somehow we were going to influence culture by becoming like the culture. That's not biblical. And they also, not only did they not have political influence, they had no social influence as well. And so all of the things that most people would use to evaluate a church, if you were to use those criteria, First Baptist Thessalonica wasn't the ticket by those standards. But thank God he's got some different standards to make a church, you notice that phrase that we read, to be counted worthy. And so let's talk about what those actually are. Number one, number one, they had a growing faith. Look at verse three. We ought to always thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. That is continuously, that word more and more, that it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. He is telling them that even though they've been through persecution, even though they've been through trials, that instead of taking them from the Lord, it's strengthening them in the Lord. And so what they have been through has served not to kill their faith or destroy their faith, but it's actually just served to strengthen their faith. How many of you have already figured this out? Trials, difficulty, pain, persecution, suffering, all of those things will destroy false faith. They will destroy it. Why? And it's one of the reasons that I spend so much time telling you about what I believe is a damnable and false theology that seems to be very prevalent in our day. And that is much of the word of faith movement. That is much of the prosperity gospel because what happens if you are to be promised that you're going to receive nothing but honor and wealth and blessings and health and what happens when that doesn't come true? Because how many of you know sometimes it doesn't come true? Have you gotten sick? Has your family, have you had grief in your family? Have you had problems? Have you had issues? Have you had financial troubles? And if that was to tell you that the reason you had those was because you didn't have enough faith, then that would have meant you bought into a false gospel. But what Paul is saying here is your faith is growing in spite of those things. It will destroy a false faith. And what we need to know is that a faith that cannot, cannot be tested cannot be trusted. When Jesus talks about the seed that is scattered. There's a lot of people that have been counted on church rolls, even people that have been baptized, that are considered quote-unquote believers, and they're no more believers than the man in the moon. And it's not that they, have a, that they lost their salvation, it's that they never had salvation. And the reason we know that is they came up as a, a root. They came up quickly. But because the soil that they were planted in, it was shallow soil or it was along the rocky path, it got eaten up and it was gone. What, is, what causes that? Trials, hardship, difficulty. It's one of the reasons why we know that our faith is real when we've seen over time that our faith has grown not because we have avoided problems, but in the midst of the problems, we have gotten stronger and stronger. I don't know if you know this, but this is a note worth taking. Faith must be exercised to grow. Faith must be exercised to grow. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, it, if you've ever spent any time in the gym or working out, most of the time somebody's pretty quickly going to explain to you that working out is great, but you also are going to have to monitor your diet. 
Nobody likes that part, especially in the southern United States. We hate that. Just tell me what I need to do. I want to be lean and skinny and muscular, and I want to do that, and I still want to keep eating fried chicken and pecan pie and bluebell. Where is that diet, right? But that diet doesn't exist. It it, it doesn't exist. So they tell you you've got to change your diet, and there's some things that you need to place in your diet, especially if you're going to build muscle mass. And they'll begin talking to you about one of the things to build muscle is you're going to have to add protein. In fact, if you're really trying to build muscle, they'll tell you that you need to add over a gram of protein for every pound of body weight that you have. So if you're 150 pounds, you ought to be taking in 150 grams of protein if you're really looking to build muscle, if you're really looking to build mass. They'll also talk about other supplements, vitamins that you need to take, possibly creatine and other things that you need to ingest so that when you work out, you will get the absolute most of that and you are fueling that. Now, I want you just to imagine that after church, we left here and we all decided that we'd take a pilgrimage to GNC. And we're just going to start buying supplements. You buy supplements, I buy supplements. We buy cans of protein that are so big, they stack all the way up to the piano. You buy creatine and vitamin supplements and all the things you see on TV. And you fill up your cabinets with that. And you get those little pill bottles, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And you stack them all up in your pill bottles. And every day you take your pills and you mix up that nasty protein that tastes like you're drinking chalk. And you start drinking that every day, every day every day every day and then you go back to the doctor and you say I don't understand I'm not my bench pressing anymore I I can't deadlift anymore I'm not squatting anymore than I was I'm not curling anymore than I was I, I just you said if I took these supplements that I would get stronger and the doctor looked at you and he said well well how often are you working out he said oh I'm not working out I'm not working out I'm just taking the supplements. And they would look at you like you were a complete fool. Because the supplements only work when they supplement something, right? How many people in church believe that you can just soak it up, soak it up, soak it up, soak it up? You, man, you guys listen to Christian music. You listen to podcasts. You listen, you record people on television. You can get DVDs. You've got everything you could possibly imagine. And we soak, 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 soak. You got to do something with it. You got to exercise it. You've got to serve. You've got to put it in action. You can only absorb so much. It's like a sponge. Eventually, you've got to wring that thing out if you're going to do anything. If you're going to increase your faith, you've got to take acts of faith. And that's what a growing faith will look like. I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes. Phillips Brooks said this, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your task. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. We need to be a people who exercise our faith if we want a growing faith. Number two, number two, what are the benchmarks of a church that is counted worthy? A growing faith and then an increasing love. And the love every one of you has for each other, verse three, is increasing a church that is healthy ought to love each other more now isn't that novel you could walk out of here and say 
We had a really deep, deep sermon today. Our pastor said that if we wanted to be healthy, we ought to love each other. But how many of you know that a church that doesn't love each other is sick? One of my favorite things that we do here is Summit 101 where we talk, talk to new member classes. And there is not one, thank God, God is blessing us with numbers. And there's not one, we hold those every other month. And every time we hold one and every time I go to one, there is not a time there that someone or multiple people do not speak up and say, one of my favorite things about coming to this church is I felt welcome, I felt loved, I felt accepted, I felt encouraged from the moment I walked in the door. And friends, I'm telling you that if if a church doesn't love each other, they are sick, sick, sick. Now, when I say love, I'd love to just move on from that, but I feel like I need to clarify it. Because love means so many different things to so many different people. And as you well know, we use the word love for everything, right? We love college football. We love deer hunting. We love shopping. We love our wives. We love our kids. We love God. Do you think it's odd that we use the same word to talk about cheeseburgers as we do our Savior? Strange to me. Strange. So when I say love, what am I talking about? I'm not talking about a sentimental emotionalism. Sometimes I think people, especially people who consider themselves men's men, all that love, schmub stuff. I just want to do something. I don't want to love. I don't know where we got in our mind that love was somehow just schmoozy emotionalism. Love is action. It is sacrificial service. That's what Jesus said. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about it. This is so good. Don't waste your time bothering whether or not you love your neighbor act like you do. <laughs> when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Isn't that amazing? So what should you do? You say, well, I'm struggling with that. Act, love someone like you would if you felt it. Don't wait to feel it. Do what you know you need to do because love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It is an attitude. And so not only do we have growing faith, not only do we have increasing love, but then look with me at verses 4 and 5. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are serving. Not only is the benchmark of a church that is counted worthy growing faith and increasing love, but third, it is persevering hope. Persevering hope. When we look at this passage, Warren Wearsby tells us that, that when God puts his people in the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If you go back to the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you go back to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the furnace. Notice that not a hair gets burned. Notice that Daniel is rescued from the mouths of lions because they only went in when God allowed them to go in and they came out when God allowed them to come out. 
Now, that doesn't mean that every time you run into trouble that God is going to shut the mouth of a lion. It doesn't mean that every time someone is thrown into a furnace that they aren't going to burn up. But what it does mean is that when we are, we don't serve a God who is out of control, but a God who is in complete control of the situation. It is difficult for us at times because we are a people who naturally question why God does it to begin with, why he doesn't turn it down, why he doesn't turn it off, why we are having to go through it. But what we do know is this, is that God is changing you. Hear me on that. All these self-help seminars about how you can find your better you and how you can become a better version of yourself and you can discover your inner truth and you can find inner peace and you can find inner security. You could take all of those books and put them in a pile and pour gasoline on them and burn them because they're garbage. And here's why. There, you have no inner peace. You have no inner strength. You can't find it in yourself. And the reason is it's not there. It's not inside all of us. This isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of faith. It is the recognition that the reason and what Paul is noticing in the Thessalonian church is he wants to encourage them. He's encouraging them not to avoid the trials and tribulations, but to see them as something that God has placed in their lives on purpose. And sometimes verse 5 especially is misunderstood when it says that God's judgment would be proved right. Here is how God's judgment is proved right. You make Jesus the Lord of your life and you become radically saved. Where in the Bible does it promise that your life is going to get easier? Where is that in the 27 books of the New Testament? If somebody showed me chapter and verse where your life gets easier, you won't find it. So if you don't find that your life is going to get easier, we might know that your life may get increasingly difficult because of your faith. So because it gets difficult, what we know is if I was trying to find my inner peace, my inner security, or my inner strength, I would give up on my faith. Why? Because I couldn't do it on my own. So the fact that I can't do it on my own and I need the Lord shows me that everything that I have been through, everything that I have walked through, everything that I have survived, everything that I have persevered, every time my head has been lifted, every time I've been able to thank God in the midst of the storm, every time he's walked with me, every time I've looked back and seen evidence of God, I, don't, I look back and I see those things and those are the blessed assurance of my salvation. Why? The persecutions and the afflictions themselves don't prove anything. Anybody can be afflicted. But what some of you know is, is that you have made it through things. Listen to me. You have made it through things that you would never have made it through if God hadn't been in your life. Any, can anybody in here testify to that? I am positive in my life that Christ was with me, that the Holy Spirit strengthened me, and I would not have made it were it not for God. If that's your testimony, then that is also an assurance of your salvation because God's judgment has been proved right. Are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. What is one of the reasons I know I'm saved? Not that I've avoided problems, 
problems. Not that I've avoided physical issues. Not that I've avoided ostracism. Not that I've avoided persecution. Not that I've avoided all those things. But in the midst of all those things, I discovered that he is the rock, the stronghold of my salvation, that his blood is thick, that I stand on the solid rock of Christ. And so when I look back on those things, I know I'm saved. And one of the reasons that I know I'm saved is because that he has been there for me on every page, every time you turn it. So now when I look back, just like with the Thessalonians, he tells them, you can be sure of your salvation because of what God has done in you and through you, not to keep you out of problems, but in the midst of problems because he's changing you. He's changing you. I ask you, how many of you know that God has been there with you? Let me ask you a second question. How many of you know that you're not the same person you once were? We talked about sanctification last week, what it means to be sanctified by the blood of Jesus. If you can look back and you know I'm not who I once was, if that's your story, then what you know is, is that you didn't do that on your own because you don't have the power to save yourself, the strength to save yourself, the grace to save yourself, the mercy to save yourself, the wisdom to save yourself. So God had to save you. But the same God that saves you is also the God that sanctifies you. Do any of you remember us talking about that last week? So if God sanctifies you and you know you've been sanctified, then what you also know is that the proof was not only that you've made it through the trials and tribulations, but that through the trials and tribulations, some of you know right now that you love and depend on God more right now in your life than you did before those things happened. Amen? Amen? Which here's where we get to the part where if you hadn't experienced Jesus, people think this is crazy. So lean in close because you've got to hear this. Some of you are guests with us today. Some of you haven't met the Lord Jesus yet. Some of you may be in the room or you may be listening by any of the various media channels. And I want you to know something. There's a strange thing among the people here. A lot of them would not trade the trials that they've been through. In other words, even if they could go back in time they wouldn't avoid them. Doesn't mean they want to go through them again. But it means they wouldn't avoid them because had it not been for them, they wouldn't be who they are today in Christ. Now that takes time. That takes perspective. That takes prayer. But what Paul is saying to this church is when you look at your life, you will be able to see that. Not because you have earned your salvation, but because you had your salvation. And the reason it is held up is because God is in your life. What Paul is basically saying in verses 4 and 5 is that what God has been doing in them is working. What God has been doing in them is working. If you're thinking about it this morning, I want you to think about some of the more difficult things that you've been through. Maybe that's just recently or maybe that's in your life. And I want you to, especially those things that you've had a little bit of time to have some perspective on. What has God taught you in that? What have you learned through that? And if your answer is that you have learned anything through it, and I think you have, then what you also know is that there's probably some things, and, and this isn't, 
This isn't really fun to remind people of. It's just reality. You haven't seen the last of hard times. You haven't seen the last of difficulty. You haven't seen the last of problems. You haven't seen the last of people not treating you like they should. So because of what God's done for you in the past, how should that inform what, you, what you're going to believe about what God's doing in the future? Now I look back on my life and there's a few things I can't even, because I have to verbalize it, I can write it, but I can't even say it out loud because I'd break down. There's, you know, some of those things in your life that you just have to kind of, you can say a phrase or two about, but you look back on it and you realize, oh man. And I don't break down because it's so terrible. I would break down trying to tell you about it because I recognize that were it not for God and how he lifted my feet up and got me out of the muck in the choir and set my feet upon a rock and put a new song in my mouth, that if God had not done that, I don't know where I'd be, but I can guarantee you one thing, it wouldn't be here. When I look at how God has taken care and provided, when I look at, and this is one of the more difficult things, the things that I've prayed for that God hasn't given me. I have prayed for some things over my life and begged God to do some things that God has not done. And in the midst of those things, I could tell you I was so angry and so mad and so frustrated at God because I knew he loved me and I knew he could do it, but he wouldn't do it. But thank God for some perspective because now I look back on my life and bow my head and say, oh God, thank you for not doing that. Thank you that your wisdom is more than mine. Thank you that you delivered. Thank you that the answer to that prayer is no. Thank you because because of that, what I'm seeing in my life is so much better and when I say better, don't get the wrong idea. Not easy and smooth. What I'm saying is it's better because through it, I have learned to lean on a God who perseveres with me, who walks with me, who loves me. And hopefully through all that, our faith is growing. Our love is growing and our hope is increasing. So I want to warn you today, church. I want to warn you today from Paul's message of something that I think is for all of us can be very dangerous. I think there are a lot of people, Christian people, well-meaning people that have gotten off course. And when I say off course, I don't mean that they've thrown their lives away to drugs and gambling or that they have abandoned their families. There are those, but here's what I'm specifically talking about. There are a lot of people today that I think that have gotten off course because they think they have reached a final state. They think they've gotten where they need to be. They think that they have grown enough. And if that's where you are, then listen, listen, listen. Until your body is glorified, God is not done with you. He still wants you to grow. He still wants you to love him more. He still wants your faith to grow. He still wants you to persevere more. So if, if you've kind of gotten lazy or maybe complacent or just a little bit indifferent about how you feel about your walk with Christ, then you need to know today you have not arrived. You haven't arrived. 
You haven't gotten there yet. That doesn't mean you're not incredible. That doesn't mean God hadn't done wonderful things in your life. That doesn't mean you haven't grown. But the sign of somebody who really loves Jesus is someone who decides, you know what? God's not done with me yet and I've got a long way to go. When you have that realization, then God begins to break through and break down some barriers and do some really incredible things in your life. You know, there are a lot of ways that I could brag on you, church. I try to do that quite often. Because as you know, we meet together on Sundays. And sometimes these texts are tough, amen? Sometimes they step all over our feet and our souls. People tell me all the time, you stomped on our feet. I'm not worried about your feet. I'm worried about your soul. And the reason that sometimes we stomp on them is because the word convicts. But what I want you to know today is, is that when I read these things about what a healthy church, about what a church that is counted worthy actually looks like, I bow my head and I thank God for you. I am so, so proud of you. Have we arrived? No. Do you have a long way to go? Yes. Does your pastor have a long way to go? Yes. Do we collectively have a long way to go together? Yes. But are we on the road? Are we striving? Are we together? Do we love each other? Are we growing in faith? Are we persevering in hope? Yes, yes, yes. So I would tell you to keep doing what God is already doing in your life. To look honestly, because it's not just about how the church is doing, it's about how you're doing. The church can't do well collectively if we're not doing well individually. So look at your own life. Are you growing in faith? Are you increasing in love? Are you persevering in hope? And if you're not in any of those things, would you come before the Lord and all you have to say is, God, I can't do it on my own. Because by the way, you can't. You can't. And the great thing is, he's going to meet you right there at that place. When I came before the Lord at nine, I mentioned to you when we prayed this morning. I understood I was a sinner and I understood Jesus had died for me. And I knew that he rose again and I knew that if I confessed my sin and asked him to take control of my life, that I'd be saved. But I am 43 years old right now. And in the last 34 years of my life, God's been growing me and teaching me and disciplining me and admonishing me. I've been through more than I could possibly imagine. I could not have thought about a light that life would take me down the paths that it's taken me down. But I can tell you this. I don't know whether God's going to give me 50 more years or 10 more minutes. But what I do know is I'm looking forward to the journey. I'm looking forward to what God's going to do and I'm going to hold on to him tight. But I'm not holding on to him alone. I want to hold on to him together with you, the body of Christ, a church that's counted worthy. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.